0: If you wanted to be like the absolute best at something, there's only one person in the world that's the absolute best, and that's kind of a hotly contested throne to sit on. But being kind of good at a lot of things, that's still real valuable, and that can get you a lot of places that you might not be able to go otherwise.
1: I really enjoy talking to Ben Burns because I never have to prepare notes. We just follow Free Association through his myriad projects, like composition, streaming, game development, podcasting, and discuss the creative underpinnings behind them. But we had to start somewhere, so I chose Color Jumper, a game he ported to the Switch just last week. I'm Stephen Kelly, and thanks for joining us for an Evening at the Roost.
0: For people who aren't familiar, Color Jumper is a puzzle platformer game uh, inspired by Super Meat Boy where, um, you know, it's, it's difficult, uh, quick respawns, uh, lots of lots of deaths. But you come back fast and it's like iterative learning like Celeste. And I recently got that ported to the Switch, which I'm very yes. excited and very proud about. It's so um, cool. Thank you. Thank you. I I have always dreamed about having something on the switch like when i was seven years old and i got my nintendo my old ness and i was like oh man this is so cool what if i could like get something on there you know mm-hmm. one of these days and like 30 some odd years later I'm, I'm finally able to do that and it's
1: like one of those big bucket list things and i'm really proud of that it's got to be the coolest thing to like load up your <laughs> own trailer and it begins with that yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty That's wild. Good. That's very cool. Yeah,
0: yeah. I um, but the the process. I, I I worked with somebody for that. Like I, I was very adamant during the development of the game to do everything myself because I'm a very stubborn person. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do everything myself. I did the coding and the art and the music and all that myself, and I'm I'm happy for that. But yeah. um, when I released the game. Uh, initially, back in twenty seventeen, I tried to do the marketing myself, and that was a bad idea,
1: <laughs> so I can um, relate to that pretty hard
0: yeah, yeah, so this time around i uh I, I, I wizened up a little bit and i uh I worked with somebody to do the switch port um his name's Mark Lacroix, mm-hmm. and I can give you his twitter handle he's a he's a super nice guy i i I knew him for a while before we started working on the switch port. Um, but he was, he was kind of, uh, hands on with me on that. Like I told him from the get go, it's like, I want to learn how to do this myself eventually, but I know Mm -hmm. that if I try to do it like right away, it's not going to happen because there's just so many moving parts.
1: Yeah. Actually, that's interesting at Mm -hmm. this ground level. Why the switch one it's, it's probably one of the more accessible
0: platforms right now when it comes Mm -hmm. to like dedicated, uh, consoles. Um, yeah. but it's also for me personally, it's just one of those things where it's like, I grew up with a Nintendo yeah. and having, having a Nintendo console with my like logo and my name on it is, is pretty, pretty it's incredible. A special thing.
1: Yeah. It's something yeah. that I've been getting increasingly interested in because, uh, you might've heard that, um, super giant is putting out Hades on the switch.
0: Oh, I yeah. didn't
1: hear that. Hades is amazing. Though. It's coming up soon. It's coming up soon. And from what I understand, that's going to be the first console that, that, that that game is uh, released on mm-hmm. because before it's just been pc only and yeah. i just thought that was fascinating because it really doesn't seem like that long ago that you'd ha- you'd be pretty crazy to put your game on the switch and not on microsoft or sony you know mm-hmm. as an indie developer too and now the switch just seems like it's this like burgeoning home for like smaller games
0: I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, primarily, I think that the the limitations of the hardware works really well with indie developers mm-hmm. because, for the most part, a lot of indie games focus on um, obviously beautiful art, but not necessarily complex art.
1: Yeah, not taxing art. Yeah,
0: yeah, so it's not like the new like Call of Duty Warzone or whatever, where it's just like it's just like incredibly hyper realistic art. Like that doesn't really work as well on the Switch. You're looking mm-hmm. for a specific, not a specific certain art style, but kind of a more simplified, low poly, um, kind of art style, and I think that that really works well on the Switch because yeah. it it has the lower processing capabilities, but it's still a powerful machine. Um, and also, especially for like something like Hades or my game, those games are designed to be like kind of consumed in small doses. Yeah. Um, and the Switch being portable allows you to do that, where if you just have like a half hour to burn somewhere, you can sit down and play games mm-hmm. because it's portable. You're allowed to just like bring it with you. And yeah. having, having the kind of the more monolithic consoles is great because there's more power and there's more like dynamism with it, but it doesn't give you that ability to just kind of bring it with you.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's one of the main reasons that if I'm going to get a smaller game, Honestly, the Switch is going to be my go-to platform at this point because I get the built-in handheld version, and I'm already booting that thing up every day to play Animal (laughs) Crossing. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think that there's just a lot of really wonderful things that you can do with that platform um, with the motion controls and all that other stuff. And, yeah. like, yeah. I'm, I'm not like some kind of stand for f- Nintendo. I think that, you know, they have their own problems in some ways, but the switch as a piece of hardware is just incredible. Um, especially yeah. compared to like yeah. where they came from with the, with the Wii U. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. It, it's like the, you know, the prototype has, has come into its own. Um, yeah. it's, at this point it's become my favorite console of all time, I think. And, uh, yeah that that surprised me a lot um <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> so yeah what were your first steps to um investigating this this new project
0: yeah um so the first thing we had to do and well see mark had already had a N- a nintendo developer account because he had recently released his game widget satchel widget satchel on the switch mm-hmm. um which is a kind of a fun little metroidvania um exploratory game Uh, which is worth looking up if you're interested in those kind of genres. I am. But so he had already gone through the process, which is why I kind of talked to him about this because he knew more about it. Um, Mm -hmm. But the the first thing is getting a Nintendo developer account and then getting a dev kit, which is essentially a switch with some of its security unlocked. So you can like load games onto it and do testing directly on there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the other reason why I wanted to work with him, because I didn't have like five hundred, six hundred dollars to spend on another switch. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that was kind of the first thing. And then a lot of the rest of it was just like programmatic changes to the game, because there's a lot of technical minutiae that you have to go through to make it compatible with the switch, Mm -hmm. things that you wouldn't really expect, um, like I believe that it's required that you have some kind of change controller option inside of every game because huh. the, the, the controller options are so mutable. Like you can plug in one of the paddles, both of the paddles, like right. a pro controller. Like there's so many different ways that you can plug into the switch and control the switch Mm that there are like a lot of very specific options when it comes to setting up those controls
1: yeah i didn't think about that because you have like this veritable rubik's cube of a controller (laughs) in your hands you have to like go in and manually say for this configuration this is what a does for this configuration b now does this
0: yeah, yeah, and I think and I, I didn't really dig into the guts of that, um, but I think that there is kind of a, a bridge between the controllers and the switch and the game that it's running. So it's it's more just trying to figure out which controller should be player one, which controller should be uh, player I see, two. I see. And in, in my case, thankfully, like I don't have a player two. Color jumper is a single player game, so that makes it immensely easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but there's still options that have to be like resolved for just doing that just for compliance with Nintendo. Um, additionally, another kind of thing that we got stuck on was, um, uh, another requirement for Nintendo is that you have to have not their branding, but when you do show a controller, you have to show kind of the branded switch, kind of the blue and the red Mm -hmm. thing, or, you know, something like that, where it's, or the, or the pro controller, Um, because you know, if you, if you're playing a switch game and an Xbox controller comes up being like, push these buttons to do whatever, like that's, that's not really within the like compliance for Nintendo. And that's something Mm -hmm. that I never really thought about where it's just like, man, now I have to find a way to dynamically switch images around whether or not they have this controller or if it's on the PC, then it's like this controller. And, um, again, it wasn't like a difficult thing to overcome but it was just like all of these little unexpected things that i just didn't really kind of think about before pushing something out to a different platform and i can't imagine doing that with that like going to the switch and then doing the same thing with xbox and then doing the same thing with playstation Mm -hmm. like having all of these different like little criteria that you have to complete for that specific platform
1: that's that's exactly what supergiant was was talking about i'm pretty sure i heard about this in the um, no clip documentaries that uh, about the oh. development of that game um excellent youtube uh, channel if you haven't seen it before yeah, i'll have
0: to look into that one specifically because yeah. i've i've uh hades is an amazing game and i'd love to learn more about it. oh
1: you can learn so 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 much about it with that series <laughs> uh, i got I, I will link it to you for sure we can also put it in the show notes um but yeah. they were specifically saying despite the success that they've had ever since bastion they still have a pretty small team and it's not yeah. nothing to have to port it to multiple, like you said, interfaces, infrastructures, and just the time and money that you have to sink into that. So they kind of had to pick their battle and settled on Switch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really something that you have to decide when you start building the game, like from a development standpoint. And that's like not easy to do because you're busy prototyping then. Yeah. And you, it, you can't, really bolt that stuff on afterwards um well you can but it's it's a huge effort like i learned with color jumper and i uh when i started working on my next game which i'm sure we'll talk about soon Mm -hmm. like that was something that i kind of thought about from the start where it's just like well at some point i'm going to need to dynamically switch images i have to have a like a dynamic input system for all this stuff and like it's it's something that you have to plan for way way in advance mm-hmm. and it's not something that you can just kind of like drop a file in there and everything works <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: color jumper was definitely it, it's not a very optimized game in the background um mm-hmm.
1: yeah. and
0: I, I look at it now as like, man, that that could have been done better. But I really don't want to spend the time to like refactor the entire game.
1: So. Yeah, it's it's something you don't think about from a player's perspective because it looks so clean and intentional and simple. But <laughs> what's running under the hood is is well, literally under the hood. Yeah,
0: yeah. Didn't I, I? I remember reading this a couple months ago. But isn't Celeste like just one file? Just like the whole game <laughs> loops through. It, it, like, loops through one big file, like, every frame, and obviously it omits a lot of those lines unless something specific's happening, mm-hmm. but it's just, like, I remember it being, like, just one big blob of code that is basically the entire game. Wow. <laughs> it's It's pretty incredible, like, what you can do with that, and it still works, it's just, like you said, it's, like, all under the hood, it's all something that's not really visible,
1: mm-hmm. and as
0: long as it works, like, why not, but... When it comes to porting and other stuff, that's when things get complicated.
1: Yeah, like my only experience that comes close to coding for a game is the RPG Maker tool sets. Mm, I spent a lot of time dabbling in those. and I remember uh, being in a rush and trying to finish this semi-elaborate sequence it's basically like a giant um, tree of choices and different things will move around on the screen and characters will appear and disappear depending on what you choose. And I didn't know how to use some of those basic functions. So I was going in and making characters invisible and having them run around behind the scenes and physically moving everything around because I didn't know how to reset loops and uh, it was a complete mess. So um, I can only imagine how an actual game could go wrong if you're not careful. No.
0: Yeah. I mean, I if we wanted to delve a little bit more into the creative side of things, mm-hmm. I I feel that a lot of like almost anybody should learn how to code because mm-hmm. it gives you kind of the structure on how to think through systems logically, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Where it's not necessarily about like the language that you're using to code, because there's like so many different languages. But it's just the mindset of like approaching a problem from a very logical point of view where it's like you have you have this one thing that you need to solve Mm -hmm. and you have these tools available on how to do it. And there's multiple ways on how to do it, but you need to figure out the way that works for you. And I mean most creative problems are that kind of same situation where it's like with making music, like I want to make a certain style. Mm -hmm. I have like these tools available to me. Like, how am I going to resolve that conflict? And I think programming for me has been very instrumental in, in kind of practicing that because it's, it's kind Mm -hmm. of a very distilled version of the creative process in that regard.
1: So that's really interesting because I don't often hear people compare like the art of music to the art of coding. Oftentimes they they're, separated. One is a logic, one is I don't know, imagination or art. And it's interesting that you just drew a parallel.
0: I I really like drawing that parallel because a lot of people who don't program or or not aren't familiar with like game development can don't really think of it like that. And Mm -hmm. and programming is a very creative process because there are multiple ways to resolve issues. And some of them are definitely better than others, but it still requires that, like, um, understanding of multiple systems and, and understanding how, if you affect this one thing, how everything else will kind of fall into place from it. Mm-hmm. And a lot can be said about music production the same way, where it's like, if you have a particular chord, like, if you want to move between two chords, like, how exactly do you resolve that movement? Mm-hmm. Um like, do you want to do melodic res- resolution or do you want to do like harmonic resolution with chords? And like, there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can move between parts of a song, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a correct one and
1: you have to find the one that works with your style. Mm-hmm. So in a way you're saying that they both deal with creative problem solving and one will aid yes. the other just by thinking through it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I just feel that uh, with programming, you have more direct feedback when you're,
1: Uh, doing it wrong. (laughs) That's the thing. Yeah. And even in my limited experience, the most satisfying thing has been to find that, find out that something is going wrong, then open Mm -hmm. up the hood and you can literally step by step, uh, retrace your steps and find out where the problem area is and then say, okay, well, where do I go from here? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Sometimes when making music, I wish I had
1: that feature (laughs) just like why do these two chords sound so bad next to each other Mm -hmm. i mean when it comes to music i'm so intuitive it's almost ridiculous i i Mm. I can barely play i couldn't i can barely tell you what notes are in my song for crying out loud Mm -hmm. i I do it all by ear which i find very fun but if i don't know why something's working sometimes i just don't know why something is working
0: yeah no, I, I was like that for a very, very long time. I think I wrote music for 15 years before picking up the basics of music theory. Wow. And, um, <laughs> After yeah, my own and, heart. I mean, yeah, it, it worked fine. Like you said, like I, I kind of knew what I wanted and I kind of plunked around and I, I made things work and it worked great. And the sounds when I made in that kind of era of my music making, uh, career were fine. I, I really liked some of them, mm-hmm. but I I feel that music theory is something that people can shy away from sometimes. Yeah. And be, because and I don't know about you specifically, but a lot of people feel like, well, this will this will hamper my creativity. It'll it'll make me less creative because I have to follow these rules. Yeah. And I I I very strongly feel that music theory or color theory or design theory or any of that stuff, those are just guidelines for when you get stuck where Mhm. Like if you don't know how to resolve a chord or you don't know how to make a melody sound the way you want it to, then you can kind of fall back on your, your training with music theory. And mm-hmm. then you can kind of figure out the the baseline for how it should happen, like following the rules that are in place there, and then you can make it more your style from there. But I I, I really do feel that everybody in in their creative environment um should learn theory. Uh, that that matches that and and yes you're you're um when you 're learning, I do think that your art suffers a bit because you 're kind of absorbing all of this knowledge and you want to apply it, yeah, and like music theory if you 're just following like the rote theory if is it 's real boring it 's like well it 's a two five one chord or it 's like it's it's mm-hmm. it 's all this really really basic stuff, but that 's kind of the
1: building blocks for making things more complex and you and you got to start somewhere. It's almost like um, playing a sport or like playing a fighting game or something where, um, oh, yeah. you know, when you, when you first start out, I often just want to encourage you to just play around. Just have fun. Don't worry about if you're doing it you know, right or wrong or what the technique is. Just, just learn about it. And mm-hmm. once you start to get uh, a feel for it, then it's like, okay, now that you're wanting to accomplish specific goals and get better, um, if you know, like let's say you're playing a fighting game, if you know some combos – then that's really going to help you. And it's going to feel clunky and awkward when you're learning the combos. But then that moment when you are in the middle of a unique match and you bust out a combo without even thinking about it because you realize that that could aid you in that in that yeah. millisecond, that's super satisfying.
0: Yeah, I really like that analogy with like fighting games, especially something like Smash Brothers, where mm-hmm. you could very easily just button mash and... You know, do pretty well. Yeah. But once you take the time to sit down and learn, like like general combos and general juggling and all that other stuff, like yeah, your your gameplay suffers for a bit while you're learning that. But yeah. then when you get over that, you have control over what you want to do,
1: and you can use those techniques for totally creative ends.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. I'm gonna
1: steal that. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> creative Commons. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So you mentioned the other game you're working on, and I definitely want to get to that uh, before we stop talking today. So tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, so uh, I recently released on itch.io a a game called Death Drives a Bus, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a cute little, uh, like, chunky pixel art uh, game where you are death, but your horse has fallen sick, so you have to drive a bus around and pick up angels and demons and deliver them to heaven, and heck, (laughs) Um, I very specifically said heck in the game. I don't really know why, I just think it's cute um <laughs> yeah but yeah i i had a lot of fun making the game it it kind of ended up being my quarantine game ah, where yes. I, I started it in february february <laughs> and um this was around the same time that my wife had picked up animal crossing so mm-hmm. i was sitting next to her on my laptop making the game and she was playing animal crossing. And like when right. she ran into a, a question or an issue, then I was like, I quickly Googled it for her. So we kind of, we kind of played animal crossing together while I was working on my other thing. And it was, it was a ton of fun and the game kind of grew into something that I really liked. And I wanted to just kind of keep working on it. And I'm really happy with how it came out. Like it ended up being just 50 levels um, of increasing difficulty. Mm-hmm. I'm also really happy with the soundtrack, which was made in Famitracker. Um, oh, neat. I, uh, I, I really like Famitracker because uh, it's, it's a Nintendo sound chip emulator for those who aren't familiar. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very true way to make your sound sound like it came from a Nintendo.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we have a lot of Famitracker fans around here. <laughs> so I think you're yeah. in good company.
0: Well, I, I'm I'm sure if anybody's I'm not to brag, but I'm sure if anybody's uh, tried to learn Famitracker, they've found my videos on on YouTube with the How to Use Famitracker tracker series. Ah, I, I get a cool, lot of cool. people who I get a lot of people who find me through that, and I I, I always think it's funny that they think that I'm some kind of expert. At famitracker and it's like, no, I'm still learning. <laughs> I just kind of, <laughs> mm-hmm. I the best way for me to learn is to teach. So it's like I, I just had to sit down and I just had to go through all of the tutorials and the guides and everything out there, and I just uh-huh. kind of okay. made my own series. and And I'm I'm really happy that people find it useful. Like I, I yeah, tend to get neat. a comment or two every week, being like, "Hey, like this is really great. Thank you so much for this." And that it means well a something lot to me that,
1: something cool yeah. about what you do, Ben, is you you dabble in all of these different mediums yeah. and. It, even if you don't feel like you're an expert in them, um, like I think that, like we said, we're talking about before, that very versatility is what lets you learn other mediums even faster. <laughs> hmm.
0: Oh yeah. There's there's a ton. I, I was I'm trying to think of the term for that. It's like transference or something. But oh, there yeah. there is there is like a term that like if once you kind of understand one thing, it's a little easier to pick up the next thing and then yeah. the next thing after that and I I I fully feel like being a jack of all trades is for the most part better than being a master of one of them mm-hmm. um at least for me personally like I I can't speak for other people on that front but I really like the idea that if I wanted to do something I just need to kind of sit down and and learn it and I know that I'm not going to be like you know a master at any of them but I don't really want to be Mm-hmm. I I would rather kind of just be dynamic with what I can do, and 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 focus on you know just kind of learning and and trying to trying to share that knowledge and and growth with with other people.
1: I I wish Brian, uh, my my co-host and brother, was here because you're sounding exactly like him right now. Oh. That, <laughs> that is how he always puts it. Um, uh, it's like finally you know into his twenties he realizes I need to stop feeling like I need to master guitar or get really Mm. good at audio editing i just like trying everything and that's just what i do and it's an incredibly valuable skill because you know what everyone goes to brian for advice on everything because he's just pretty good at everything exactly
0: yeah and i mean the other thing is is that if you wanted to be like the absolute best at something there's only one person in the world that's the absolute best, and that's yes. kind of a it's a hotly contested uh, throne to sit on. But being kind of good at a lot of things, like that's that's still real valuable, and that can that can get you a lot of places that you might not be able to go otherwise.
1: Yeah, and and like um, it, the thing is we have we have access to everyone in the world now, so mm-hmm. it's really easy to feel undervalued or inadequate just because you can. <laughs> Get on YouTube and immediately find experts who have dedicated their life to it, to a task.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's real easy to get psyched out by, by somebody who is like, and obviously it's very impressive. Like I love watching people who can just play like funk guitar or Mm -hmm. funk piano and stuff like that. And just like, just watching them go is just incredible and inspiring, but I don't, I don't think I'll ever get to that. Point in my life that I can do that and that's okay. Like I, I know that I can do things that they can't and I think that that's still something that you can embrace.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. If you look at it as like a collective um, humanity rather than competition, it certainly becomes mm-hmm. a lot more inspiring and less demoralizing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and competition and creativity is like a whole other topic. That yes. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into.
1: <laughs> that, well... <laughs> I'm going to get back us up for a second because we were sure. talking about Fame Tracker and uh Oh yeah. um the soundtrack That's... you made. So, yeah. w- let's talk a little bit about that so we get some some music in here on our music
0: show. <laughs> oh sure. Uh this and this soundtrack is available right now on Spotify and mm-hmm. Bandcamp and iTunes and all the other places. It's it's a fairly small soundtrack. Um like most kind of retro games, each loop is about 30 to 45 seconds mm-hmm. and there's uh, only four songs on the album. Um, there's one menu song, and then there's three songs that are randomly chosen um, whenever you like load up a level.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but they're all fairly unique, and they were a lot of fun to make. I believe I made two of the three gameplay songs on stream, so I made oh, them cool. live, um, which is always fun. I, I like doing Famitracker live I don't do it as often as I used to but uh, there definitely is a, a small group of people that really like to watch me fiddle around inside of a, a tracker
1: um, and, and for those who uh, don't remember the interview we had with you back in the overclock remix podcast um, you do a lot of uh, live music creation
0: yeah yeah um, I do something called the two-hour track challenge which is happens every Wednesday uh where I sit down and I write a song from start to finish over the course of 2 hours. Uh I've been doing that for almost 5 years now. I'm going to hit episode 250 on October 3rd. Wow. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I I really it, it, uh, along with the idea that it's um okay not to be the best at everything. I also think that it's really important to sit down and just do something on a mm-hmm. schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the same thing with like theory and everything else, it's just important to just have something there. And I, I feel that that Wednesday stream that two hour track challenge is like me going to the gym, um, <laughs> for, for my creative muscles. Um, because it's really something that I, I don't know many people that are like stoked to walk into a gym, But generally, when they're walking out, they're like, "Yeah, that was pretty cool."
1: Yeah, I'm glad Um, I did that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there are ups and downs to it. Like right now, I'm I'm kind of in a down uh, a trough. There's peaks and valleys, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's okay. Like sometimes there's just songs that are they're mediocre, and that's okay. But there's also songs that are incredible. Um, There's a song that I made, I think, like last month or two months ago called After the Aftermath. That is like one of my favorite songs I've ever written. And it's something that I made in like two hours. And it's just like if you you never know what you're going to create, if you don't actually sit down and put notes on the paper. And if if you just spend all day planning and not actually doing like nothing, nothing will happen. So, you just have to sit down and do it sometimes. And, you know, it's not always the fun part, but sometimes something cool comes out of it.
1: just by doing it enough by saying i have created you know three five ten twenty songs then you'll look back at those and just through the numbers you're going to have at least a couple that stand out and you're like "Mm -hmm. i'm really proud of that i really like where that went and you'll slowly build a collection and that's a really satisfying feeling
0: yeah yeah i have um I'll, i'll send you this link i have a spotify list of all of the two hour track challenge songs that i've uh put out so far ranked by how much i like them
1: oh cool um cool.
0: so i will i'll send that to you and then um if you wanted to put that in the show notes you can see all the good ones and if you scroll all the way down you can hear all the bad ones too oh <laughs> so, nice
1: well I'll, um, I'll work through this and then and then rank it myself <laughs> and compare oh, it yeah. that
0: that would be quite the feat right now there's 190 songs <laughs> holy in cow
1: i'm gonna back off on this already <laughs> <laughs> wow that's awesome like it's it's kind of weird like i
0: have I have everything kind of set up in a different in a specific way uh the two hour track challenge is specifically for my patreon like that's kind of oh, the song of okay. the week that I send to my patreon subscribers um where they can use that in their game development and anything else um I don't Very really cool. wanna I guess I can plug my Patreon, but it's just basically like I have I, I allow them to use my music royalty free if they subscribe to me and I, I try to put something out new every week because of that. So that's kind of like the two hour track challenge is my mm-hmm. way of making a song for Patreon. And then I just kind of when I am working on some another project that I think is um that I think is worthwhile and I need to make music for it, then I just kinda of work on that when I, I need the music. So uh-huh. I stream it when I can, if I don't want to stream or if I don't, uh, have time to stream, then I just kind of work on it in my own time. But the nice thing about the two hour track challenge is it just takes two hours out of my week. So it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not a huge investment on that front. So I have lots of time to work on other creative projects in that, in that regard.
1: You know, that kind of reminds me of doing a regular podcast when you get it down Mm -hmm. to a formula. Um, it's, it's, uh, it keeps you connected with people and it keeps you, keeps you finally tuned for other projects that you're working on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I would, like I said, I was in a little bit of a creative valley lately and my August was incredibly busy because I was working on releasing color jumper and I was mm-hmm. working on releasing De- uh, death drives a bus and like the soundtrack. And I was working on a remix album with a friend and i and I'm also, I'm also working on recording an audiobook for another friend. So mm-hmm. I have like all of these other tasks going on and just like creatively the two hour track stream just kind of fell by the wayside a little bit and I didn't have the same creative energy for it. Mm -hmm. But now I'm kind of through all of that bulk of, of things that were just distracting me. And I'm trying to like build that creative energy back up for, for those streams again. And it's getting there. It's still a little slow, but I'm getting there. I, when I, when I don't have any ideas, I tend to default to like chill out piano music, which Mm -hmm. is good, but it's just kind of bland sometimes, at least in my opinion. Uh So (laughs) well,
1: it almost kind of sounds like the, the cool down day, you know, putting this Mm -hmm. into workout terms, (laughs) you can't, you know, and not, you can't do upper body every single day. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Every day can't be leg day.
1: <laughs> or, or it shouldn't be. <laughs> Let's yeah. just put it that way. Um, so it kind of sounds like you've had a lot of projects kind of come to a head in a conclusion. Uh, what are you really excited about right now?
0: Um... Not having to work on projects, ah, there you go. The creative <laughs> well, cycle. I, I still yeah, I still have about half of the audiobook left to record, but okay. uh, the deadline got pushed out on that because the writer wanted to to refine it a little bit more. so like mm-hmm. my deadline went from like September to December, so I have way more breathing room on mm. that, and I have a handful more like small commission projects that I need to work on, but they're all they're all very minimal and low impact. They're not low effort. They're low impact. They yeah. don't. They don't like take a lot of mental energy from me. So, like in September, I'm just hoping to kind of recover and and recuperate a little bit and and start working on my own creative projects again. And that's that's very exciting.
1: That sounds like a great plan. Um, are yeah. are you the kind of person who easily finds themselves in kind of a burnout mode?
0: I'm getting better at pacing myself. Mm. I used to burn out very badly. Um when I initially released Color Jumper that was I was juggling like four other projects when I was putting that out um, cuz I was I was making sound effects for uh like a mobile developer mm-hmm. I was uh working on the soundtrack for Visual Out which is a fantastic game that's another Metroidvania um like the visual out soundtrack and the color jumper soundtrack were released kind of around, or they were made around the same time. They were released kind of a couple months apart, Mm -hmm. but those two soundtracks are probably one of my favorites or two of my favorite soundtracks, uh, in a long time. Um, so I was, I was working on so many things and I had like a huge backlog of commissions and 2018 was essentially just a year of burnout for me. Mm. um, So I'm, I'm kind of recuperating from that and I'm learning how to better pace myself and better manage my time and my creative energy. And I I feel like I'm getting a lot better at it. Um, And a lot of that is just like saying, like being able to say no to some projects because I have a very hard time saying no to a project because I love working with people, Mm -hmm. but I also have to realize that there are only 24 hours in a day. And a lot of those are dedicated to sleep and my day job and like having food. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I'm a huge fan of having food personally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Uh,
1: Yeah. I I definitely feel that it's, it's something I think I've gotten better at as well. I've just part of it. I think is I'm getting better at estimating um, how much time something really is going to take up because I would very easily before say, Oh, I really want to be involved with this project and I like this person. So, I'll just do it. It'd be better to say I can do it and see what happens. Um, but then you find yourself in the unenviable position of either pushing yourself way too hard or backing out of the deal. And those are both feel really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I've
0: definitely, I've definitely been in both of those positions and I, I really don't want to be in either anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to be more uh, judicious when it comes to, uh, which projects I want to take on and like when they they're coming in and all that other stuff and what yes, they do. Yes. Um, but like really I, I'm thankfully in a place where, like I said, I have a day job, so I don't need to rely on those the same way somebody else might. yeah So yeah. if, if I want to just be like, yeah, I'm not going to do commissions for a while, then I'll just not do commissions for a while mm-hmm. and things will be fine. So yeah, that, that I, part's kind of nice.
1: I, I am in, in the same position. I'm, I'm always creating something. But it's just because I want to create something. Um, I don't mm-hmm. have to do it. Uh, it's, at this point, it's kind of become a conscious choice to say, I like my job. Um, I'm going to keep oh, yeah. doing that. Um, because I'm perfectly happy to, to keep my creative projects just for the pure enjoyment and fun of it, even though they can be difficult sometimes. Um, yeah. There's always part of me that says, maybe one day I'll stumble into something where I can you know, dedicate work and creative time to the same thing. Um, but we'll see, there's still plenty of life left to live.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's the dream, but I, I, I do, I do like to say that, and it's not really, it might be a contentious opinion, but if, if somebody is an indie developer, or indie musician trying to make it, I still want to say, get a job because Mm -hmm. that security. And even if it's a part-time job, you know, like that security with an actual paycheck that comes in every week um is is so very valuable um when i got out of college i was a freelance designer for a little while and living month to month trying to find people to like work with me for website design mm-hmm. or brochure design or all of that stuff just like scrambling for clients just to get a paycheck just so i can pay my rent and all this other stuff like that it's really hard and it's really stressful and it's mm-hmm. not worth it i eventually got like a part time job at an office max like in a copy center or something Mm -hmm. and my life got a lot less stressful when i didn't have to worry about where my next paycheck was coming from yeah and i had plenty of time still to work on these other projects but i didn't have to i didn't have to constantly live in anxiety whether or not like i'm gonna have to
1: borrow money from somebody or something like that so if you have that other um like steady paycheck coming in from something unrelated, you don't have to compromise as much with what you're working on. You don't have to rush it or force it to sell or, you know, whatever that is. You can be a little more true to it and let it take its time.
0: Yeah. And one of the problems with being somebody just starting out with either indie games or making music for games or anything like that is that you don't have a network of contacts Mm -hmm. available to you yeah, and you're not able to find people that want to work with you. And because of that, you have to, like you said, make compromises. And those compromises are really what the problem is because you're either like lowering your rates to be competitive with people who don't really care as much about how much they charge mm-hmm. or you're working with like people who are just like not scrupulous in general like mm, yeah I've worked on some fairly sketchy projects in the past where either the person I was working with um was just kind of a a question mark or just like like the content that I was making was just like I don't really I don't feel comfortable doing this mm-hmm. and like i I bailed on those those as soon as I could and I don't have those on my portfolio or anywhere it's just like yeah. I I, I don't like the idea of like compromising my artistic integrity to sound like a pretentious artist, but <laughs> my artistic integrity just to like make a paycheck like that, that feels bad for me. And maybe that's fine for other people. That's, that's definitely a comfort level thing.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think a big part of the issue is it's been largely normalized that we commercialize our art. And yeah, if your art is popular and selling well, there's even a certain, uh, a bit of a subconscious impetus put on it that that is what makes it successful art. Mm -hmm. It can get to an unhealthy place. If you're viewing the validity of your art on whether or not you're able to sell it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the, the two hour track challenge initially started just as a personal challenge. And Mm -hmm. I got to a point where I was like, well, I, I, one of my friends started bugging me to like start a Patreon because of it. And I was like, well, that's not a bad idea because then I'll have content for it every week and I, like i i and that works but the whole idea of the challenge started because it's like hey this would be a fun thing to do why don't yeah. i do this yeah and then after 6 months of continuing to do that and not really giving up on it i'm like well how can i turn this into something like how can i how can i utilize what i'm already making and
1: make it something more and something that, yes. like sustainable for me that's so smart um yeah. it's it's to do something out of love for the thing itself and when it proves itself to you and you care Mm -hmm. about it then you can start thinking how can i integrate this into the rest of my life how can i share this with other people
0: yeah yeah that's that's a very good way of putting it because yeah it wasn't like a conscious decision on my part i was just like oh i I, I think (laughs) that
1: if it just happens on its own that's the best way to do it Thanks for joining us, Ben. As always, this is an enlightening conversation. Yeah, it was a lot of fun.